one of the one of the great things about having um, slightly older children. So now that the girls are 13 and Athel's 11, uh, one of the, the great things about that is that I get to rewatch old, like classic films with them, like films that I that I love. I can now experience someone else watching them for the first time. There's few better experiences. It's like you get to experience them all over again through watching them with your children. Well, I, I did this um, the, the week before last. I, I, I decided it was time. And so we finally sat down and we watched The Matrix together. Now, The Matrix came out in 1999 when I was like 16. Uh, and it like blew my mind. Um, uh, I watched it. I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and one of my uh, best friends, um, he, he went to a shop and his parents spent hundreds of pounds on a black leather trench coat for him. And I thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. I was so jealous of him. I was like, I was like where's my 100 pound black leather trench coat? But anyway, I, I loved The Matrix. I, I loved everything about it. And so being able to watch it again with my kids, it just took me back that, all those years to that moment. There's, there's a scene, though, in The Matrix where... Um, uh, where Neo, the kind of hero, and Morpheus are, are walking through a, a, a kind of the Matrix. And there's crowds of people all around them, and they're walking down the streets. And as they're walking down the street, there's a woman in a red dress who's walking down the street past them. Uh, and as Morpheus is talking to Neo as he walks down the street, he says, he says to him at one point, he says, are you still concentrating on me, or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? And at that point, he pauses it, and it's a training exercise. And the point of it is, it's really easy to get distracted. When something different, something remarkable happens, it's easy for your eyes to get turned and you to end up focusing on the wrong thing. He's no longer learning from Morpheus like he was meant to be because he's been distracted by this woman walking past him in the red dress. Sometimes something appears which is so remarkable, so kind of visually um, stimulating, so significant that we can't take our eyes off it. It just dominates our vision. You've probably done it when you're driving. You know, you're driving along and you see something, you're like, wait a minute, I should be looking at the road. Because it just catches your eye and you're intrigued by it. You can't quite work it out. I was thinking about that uh, this week as I was looking at Daniel 3. And I was wondering, what are those things, what is that thing for you here today? Like, what's the thing that dominates your mind? What's the equivalent of the woman in the red dress for you? The thing which is consuming your thought life? If I could gaze into your mind and see what you were thinking right now, what would I see? But perhaps a more interesting question than that is... If I could gaze into your mind and see what you've been thinking about over the last week, what would I then see? Well, what is it that just runs over and over in your mind as you live your life? What are those things you find yourself returning to again and again? You know, you just can't shake them. You keep coming back and thinking about them. The worries that you can't get rid of. The fantasies you keep returning to. Those activities or plans that you spend hours mulling over. Where does your mind go when you wake up? When you wake up in the morning, what do you immediately think about? What keeps you awake at night? What are those things that you're thinking about as you lie in bed trying to get to sleep? The question I'm asking is, is what dominates the horizon of your life? 
What is the vision that stands so starkly in front of you that you just keep returning to it, you keep coming back to it? <coughs> you see, we're in Daniel 3, and I just want you to picture the scene for a minute. You're, you're gathered. Imagine you were there. You're gathered in this huge crowd of people. And in front of you is a 90-foot golden statue. Imagine, for those of you who are from Hartlepool, imagine something the size of the clock tower on Church Square. That's about 90 feet tall. So something that tall, but made out of gold. And it's not surrounded by other buildings, because we're specifically told that it's been placed on a plain, the plain of Dura. So there's nothing else around it. Just this entirely open expanse. You see, the only real thing you can see you're looking over this plain, uh, and what do you see? You see a 90-foot golden statue. It's hard to take your eyes off it. I mean, I've never seen a 90-foot golden statue. I'm not sure such a thing exists. But if it did exist, it would be pretty remarkable. Now, that is the image you're meant to have in your heads because you'll have noticed it as I was reading Daniel 3. Daniel 3 has all this repetition. It says the same things over and over again. Uh, and in the first seven verses, we are told five times that Nebuchadnezzar built a giant golden statue. Like five times in those first seven verses, we're told. So in verse one, he made a golden image. In verse two, the dedication of the image he'd set up. In verse five, the image of gold he'd set up. In verse seven, the image of gold he'd set up. We just get it over and over again. They don't want you to miss the point. If I was to title... This, this section of Daniel, I would title it, King Nebuchadnezzar Built a Giant Golden Statue. Not amazingly catchy, but that is literally what it, they want you to get. They want you to understand that King Nebuchadnezzar built a giant statue made out of gold. It's the dominant kind of fixture of the beginning of this story. And so today... Uh, this is what I want to try and do this afternoon. This is what we're going to try and do. I I'm going to try and talk about five things that dominate our horizons. Five things that consume our vision. That, that we keep getting drawn to, that we can't shake. And I want to think a little bit about where is the best place for us to fix our eyes. Where is the place that we should be looking to? What is the thing that should be dominating the horizon of our lives? That's what I want to talk about. And the first of these is a giant golden statue. That's, that's the first thing, because that's what dominates the horizon of the start of this story. You see, the giant golden statue is an example of something which a culture creates and then parades in front of us, asking us to admire it, to look at it, to see its glory. That, that's what it's an example of. It's something that's been built by the Babylonian culture, and they want to say, look at this, it is remarkable, it is impressive, it is shiny, it is fancy, you want to look at this thing. It'd be pretty hard to look anywhere else when you're on the plain of Dura. And so if that's what it is, then, then what's the equivalent in our world? What, what, where, what do we see the same things happening? Well, I want to suggest that we don't have the plane of Dura, 
But what we do have is the internet. Because the internet is the place where we can now put things for everyone to see. You see, that's why Nebuchadnezzar put it on the plane of Europe, so that everyone can see it. He wants everyone to be able to see his giant statue. We don't have that, or if we do, it doesn't work in the same way. What, what we do have, though, is the internet where we can place things literally for everyone to see. And so as you think about that, well, what is it that's being put there? What's being put in front of our eyes on the internet for us to see? Well, there's, there's so many things, and I can't list them all, but let me give you a few examples. One of them is, is celebrity. Much like the statue, we're presented with a constant barrage of images of famous, wealthy, successful, and influential people. Endless celebrity gossip designed to fascinate us. Scandals designed to shock us. Wealth and achievement designed to wow us and impress us. They're not that fussed whether what we see is good and bad, as long as we're looking at it. What else do we see paraded in front of us on the internet day in, day out? Lifestyle improvements. This is the person you could be. These are the things you need to do to improve yourself, to be the person that you need to be. From positivity to exercise to healthy eating to traveling, we're constantly bombarded with images of how to be better, how to live a better life, a more complete life, the life that you really want. I'll just do one more, but it w I could do many. Uh, the internet is, is famous, perhaps, for parading one thing in front of us, and that's sex. Like, that is probably the number one thing that is placed in front of us a day, day in, day out on the internet. Packaged in a way to make it appealing, to draw us in, to make us want to watch, so that our horizons become dominated by sexual experiences we could be having, or by all the experiences that we're missing out on. Now, I could go on. Like, the internet has, like, games and projects, and there's, you'll see endless stuff about the acquisition of wealth. I, I don't know, and it'd be different for all of us, because that's how the internet works. Maybe that's more of an insight into me than it is uh, into, into the internet. The internet is the plane of Dura on steroids. <coughs> The place where we can put something for all to see. And now, with all of our data analysis and sophisticated algorithms, we are better than ever at controlling the things that dominate people's horizons. The things that we put in front of people and say, look at this. Admire this. Worship this. See this. The internet is the most sophisticated distraction device the world has ever created constantly demanding our attention and consuming our vision. How, how many of our dreams, how much of the things we think about, how much of our time is driven by the things which the internet places in front of our eyes for us to look at? As you, as you examine, back to that question I asked you at the start, what are you thinking about right now? You examine what those things are, or what you spend your week thinking about and dreaming about, I just, I just want you to ask yourself that question. How much of it is simply a product of the things, the images that are put in front of you for you to look at and admire? See, that was the whole point of the golden statue. It was designed to dominate the horizon. 
to draw everyone's eyes to look at it, to see it. So that's the first thing that can dominate our horizons. Golden statues, shiny, precious, valuable images designed to wow and impress. But I said I'd do five, and I've only done one. So we're going to keep moving, see, see if we can get through them. Uh, as you read through these opening verses, it is clear, though, what dominates Nebuchadnezzar's horizon. You, you can see it really clearly. And that is himself. That's what, that's what <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar is consumed by. We, we slightly lose this in our translation, but the, um, the original text really hammers that point out because King Nebuchadnezzar's name is used, is repeated seven times in those first seven verses. Now, our, our translation replaces it with he a lot of times just because it's a bit clunky to keep reading King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. But the point is that they want to make it clear that King Nebuchadnezzar's sole concern in life is King Nebuchadnezzar. That's the only thing he cares about. That's what dominates his vision. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image. King Nebuchadnezzar summoned the satraps. The dedication of the image King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The name repeated again and again to show us just who it is that Nebuchadnezzar cares about. He is consumed by his own self-importance, his own achievements, his own position, his own power... And that basically means he doesn't care about anyone else or anything else. He has no interest in other people. Other people's lives are cheap and unimportant to him. You can see that by the way he treats people. They're basically disposable. You give me what I want, and if you don't, I'll just get rid of you. So there's the second thing which can dominate our horizon. It's ourselves. I've, I've told this story before, but I just think it illustrates the point so perfectly. Well, one of my friends um, once told me a story um, from when he was growing up. He was, he was sat around the dinner table with his family, his dad Mick, his, uh, daughter, his sister Hannah. He sat at the table. His mum was in the kitchen making, uh, making pudding. And, and, and Sarah shouts through to the dining room, Mick, do you want custard on your pudding? To which Hannah responds... I don't like custard, I'm not called Mick. <laughs> now, seemingly, it was inconceivable to her that her mum could be talking to the person actually called Mick at the table and asking him whether he wanted custard on his pudding. Now, it is a stupid example, but it serves to illustrate the point pretty well. Our lives become so dominated by ourselves that we think everything is about us. Every question is in some way about us. Everything that everyone else does is actually about me. And notice that's where Nebuchadnezzar ends up. I think it's really interesting in verse 12 because his advisors know how to push his buttons, don't they? They know that the thing that will really annoy Nebuchadnezzar is, to take their words, that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have paid no attention to him. How dare they? They've defied him. That's what he can't cope with. He's furious with rage. Why? Well, because these people have dared to disobey him. I want to suggest that when our horizons get dominated by ourselves... (laughs) 
a few things happen. So, so the first thing is that everything becomes about us. That comment someone made about someone else was actually a sly dig at us. That time that someone was late was actually a sign that the other person doesn't want to spend time with me or they don't value my time. Someone else being asked to do something becomes them actually trying to tell us that we, they don't think we can do that thing. You see, everything becomes about us. I don't believe I'm the only person who reads into those things sometimes. Comments that had nothing to do with us were never about us. Suddenly we think it's people trying to tell us something. Because our horizon is completely consumed by ourselves. We can't imagine that this might actually have nothing to do with us. That person might be late and it might be no reflection on what they think of us. That person might have asked that other person to do it, but it might not have got anything to do with whether they think you can do it or not. You see, when we become consumed by ourselves, everything becomes about us. That's the first thing that happens. This is the second thing that happens. We start treating other people badly. We look to control and manipulate other people to feed our ego. Let me give you a, a prime way we do this. We fish for compliments. We look for opportunities to put others down and build ourselves up. We're not, we're not quite Nebuchadnezzar. We're not like, worship me or I'll throw you in a furnace. But we are looking for ways to cajole and influence other people to give us some praise, give us some worship, build us up, make us feel better because our horizons are dominated by us. That's the thing we care about. And then, of course, as a result of those two things, what happens? Well, we become incredibly insecure. When we're disrespected or overlooked, we become furious like Nebuchadnezzar. Because everything is about us, we're constantly insecure about how people actually see us and what they really make of us. Now, I just want to pause here for a minute, because I do think we live in a culture that is increasingly obsessed by self. Because basically, if you eliminate God and duty and responsibilities from the equation, then all that really matters is me. I mean, what else is there to care about? What else is there that I should be thinking about? And so our horizons become dominated by ourselves. But the problem with that is that leads to selfishness and envy and insecurity and anxiety and exploitation and manipulation and gossip. And there is no joy to be found in those things. You see, we've bought into this idea that obsessing about ourselves is the only way for us to truly live. When actually the Bible says the opposite's true. It's as our minds are taken away from ourselves that we truly live that we find the lives we want. The more consumed by ourselves we are, the less peace, the less joy, the less meaning we find, and the more insecurity, anxiety, anger, and hopelessness we discover. I, I might be wrong, I'm not a sociologist, but I think that's part of what's going on in our culture at the moment. I think that is a thing that comes uh, as we become more focused on ourselves. One of the things I constantly have to tell myself is that I just need to get over myself a little bit. As I'm lying in bed, worrying about what did someone make of that thing that I said? What did someone, how did someone interpret that thing I did? I just need to get over myself a little bit. Remember, it's not all about me. So, there you go. I've given you two. Let's keep going. Let's see if we can get through five. 
we've got gold statues, shiny, appealing things paraded in front of us. We have ourselves. But I just want to suggest there's something else going on here that's easy to miss, and that is the occasion itself. I want you to picture the occasion. You've got a giant statue, and then a congregation of the great and the good, like an extreme Oscars. You know, everyone who's anyone is there. Then you have the announcements and the music and the ceremony of it all. Imagine you're in the crowds. There's the buzz of excitement all around. The music plays. Everyone bows. It would take something not to simply be swept along by the occasion of it all. So, so I want to suggest the, thir- the third thing that can dominate our horizon is just our surroundings. Wherever we are at any given moment. Isn't that how life so often works? Our horizons are simply dominated by whatever surrounds us at that moment. And therefore, we tend to be swept along by the people, the values, and the behaviors that are around us. Just think about what's going on right now. You're in Grace Church on a Sunday afternoon. think, Think about what's happening right here. We're in church... And isn't it easy just to get swept along by it all? The energy, the atmosphere of it, some well-placed chord progressions, some moving words, all mixed in with a sense of the spiritual and some energetic people, and we just get swept along with it. We find ourselves feeling, saying, doing things that are quite different to what you do outside of this setting. You see, it's true in church, but it's also true in the rest of life. Just put us in a workplace, put us in a pub, put us in a playgroup or a football team, and suddenly we're completely different people, behaving and speaking in entirely different ways. Again, just to ask the question, so I, I, I posited at the start, what are the things that you think about? Just, just here's the question. How, how much of your thought life is consumed by trying to work out how you fit in in whatever circumstance you're in at that point? How much of your time is spent working out what are the social conventions? What are the right things to say? What are the wrong things to say? What's the right way to behave? What's the wrong way to behave? So much of our life, our thought life, is consumed by that desire to fit in. In every room, you're simply trying to work out, am I wearing the right things? Am I saying the right things? Do I belong here? So, I've given you three things that may dominate your horizons. But as the story progresses, actually the focus of the horizon changes. See, at the start, it's all about a giant golden statue. But very quickly, that statue becomes smaller. Well, it's talked about less but the furnace gets bigger. Suddenly, the object of the story is no longer the statue, but the furnace. When Nebuchadnezzar finds out that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to his statue, it's the furnace that takes up much more of the airtime. The furnace which Nebuchadnezzar is going to throw them into. This furnace which Nebuchadnezzar calls to be made even hotter once Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have refused him again. It would be pretty hard for that not to feature in a pretty dominant position in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's minds by that point. You can imagine their gaze, which had originally been drawn to the golden statue, increasingly turning to 
and they're sideways to the furnace. As they look over and they think, starting to look quite hot, that. As they see them making it even hotter and hotter, as they observe what is awaiting them, and they nudge each other and say, that's looking hot. So the scene becomes dominated no longer by the shiny statue, but by the great threat, the great danger, this great fear represented by the furnace. So, back, back to where we started. What dominates your horizon? What are the things you think about? Where does your mind go? Often it's fears, isn't it? Our lives are com- completely dominated by whatever it is that we're fearing at that moment, by the thing that looks on the horizon that we're worried about, that relationship that seems to be breaking down around us, those money problems which seem to be backing up, by our anxieties over what people think of us, over what if we make the wrong decision, over what if someone hurts us or betrays us or lets us down. When there's things to be afraid of, it's hard for them not to dominate our horizon. Now, it's worth noting that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's fears are legitimate. There is an actual furnace which is actually hot enough to kill a human being, and they are actually going to be thrown into it. Some of our fears are the same. Fears of significant things which are likely to happen. But let's just be honest, many of them are not this. Many of the fears that dominate our horizons are not furnaces that are literally there. They are fears of minor inconveniences. What if that person was offended? What, do I, what if I said the wrong thing? Or the fears of things which may be significant but are extremely unlikely to happen. Like, what if all my money evaporates or what if I catch monkeypox? Like, there are plenty of things to fear in the world. Things real and things imaginary, things which will never happen, but also plenty that will. And often, these things force their way into our thought lives, and they simply swamp everything else. They consume the entire vision of our life. Who cares about a golden statue when there's a furnace to be avoided? So, there you have four things which can dominate our horizons. Golden statues, the riches and beauty and grandeur of the things paraded in front of our eyes, demanding our attention and devotion, constantly saying, look at me. We've got ourselves, our own self-importance and our need for affirmation. We've got our surroundings, the crowd, the noise, the atmosphere and the influence of those around us. We've got our fears, those things real or imagined which have the power to disrupt or destroy our lives. I wonder how comprehensively those things sum up your thought life. Does that basically cover everything which is on your horizon? If you were to look back at the things you spent the last week thinking about, is that it? Is your vision completely covered by statues and yourself and your surroundings and your fears? Is that all you ever see? Is that all you can ever look at? Is that all you can ever think about? Because then 
we turn to the story and we find that for all these things which loom large on the horizon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego actually managed to keep their eyes fixed on something else. What is it which prevents them from being dazzled by the gold statue? What is it which enables them to look beyond their own self-preservation? What is it which enables them not to be swept along by the crowds and the music and the atmos? What is it which allows them not to give in to their fears? Well, we see in verse 16 to 18 in some of the most inspirational verses of the Old Testament. Let me read it to you. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. get a little tingle down my spine every time I read those words. Dominating their vision is not the statue or the furnace or the crowd or even themselves. No, their eyes are firmly fixed on their God. And their God puts all those other things into perspective. When you, have, when you have your eyes firmly fixed on the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who loves you and who chose you, who has promised to be with you, then a golden statue suddenly seems a lot less impressive, however tall it might be. When you have your eyes firmly fixed on the God who made you, suddenly you become so much more aware of all your limitations. It's hard to be obsessed by your own self-importance when you catch a glimpse of yourself next to the God of the universe. When, you've, when you have your eyes firmly fixed on God, a crowd swept along in worship of something other than God is a cause of sadness rather than of temptation. When you have your eyes firmly fixed on the God who is above everything in the entire universe, the flames lose some of their terror. You see, that's, that's what dominates Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's vision. It's their God. They keep their eyes fixed on God. And so when faced with the king himself, they are able to tell him, our God is able to save us. They believe in his power. Our God will save us. They have confidence that God will act on their behalf. But then those brilliant words, but even if he doesn't, he is still God and I will not worship anything else. You see, they don't presume that God will. They acknowledge God's right to be God, and their faith is not based on a deal. It's not a sort of, we believe in him, and in exchange, he will save us. No, they trust in him because he is real and trustworthy and good, and therefore they will obey him, regardless of how this all ends. In Hebrews 11, we're given this list of people who live lives of faith, who live lives with their eyes fixed on God, on who he is and what he's done. And we're told specifically that there were people who by faith quenched the fury of the flames. Seems to be referring to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. We're reminded of how they kept their eyes fixed on God and obeyed him and then they were delivered. But then, having reminded us of all these people, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who lived these kind of lives, he then goes on to say what we're meant to do about that. 
I just want to finish with, with uh, just a bit of thinking about that. This is what he says we're to do. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, since we're surrounded by people like that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us by doing what? Here we go, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. What is it we're meant to learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? As we read this story, and it's a great story, what are we actually meant to do with it? Why is it here? What's it meant to inspire us to? Well, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what Hebrews, the beginning of Hebrews 12 tells us. You see, they're an example of people who kept their eyes fixed on God. And so we are now called to do the same. But we are able not simply to fix our eyes on the God who created us and chose us, but on the God who came in the person of Jesus and died for us. When they said God is able to rescue us, we can go one better. Because we can look to Jesus and we can see what that rescue looked like. We can know that he is able to rescue us because he has already triumphed over our great enemies. On the cross, he defeated our sin. He defeated death. And so as we fix our eyes on the cross, we see a God who is, not able, who is able to deliver us. When they said that God will save them, they spoke in faith about what God would do. But when we look to Jesus, we can confidently say not only that God can deliver us or that he will deliver us, we can say that he already has. At the cross, Jesus died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. So just as Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were rescued from death, so we will be rescued from death as we share in the resurrection Jesus won for us on the cross. When they said, even if he does not, we will not serve your God, so we can say, even if we are not delivered from this specific thing we face now, because of the cross, we know that ultimately we will be delivered when we are welcomed into the new heaven and the new earth with no more pain and no more suffering and no more death. When he was on earth, Jesus told a story, a famous story. The story about a farmer who spread some seed. And, and he spread it kind of liberally, and it fell on different types of ground. Uh, and the seed, we're told, is the word of God. But because it landed on different types of soil, it didn't all grow as it was intended to. You see, some of it was eaten by birds, and so couldn't take, just was taken away. Some of it couldn't take root. The ground wasn't deep enough. It just couldn't take root, so it couldn't grow properly. Some was choked by weeds. And then finally, there was some that, that grew and flourished. When the disciples asked Jesus, what do you mean? what's this story about? What do, what do you mean by it? Jesus said, it works a bit like this. Sometimes the word of God is snatched away and we instantly forget it. But sometimes it's there and we hear it and we notice it and we know that God is speaking to us and we feel something of the life that it has for us and we experience something of that. But he said, but, but then what happens is trouble and hardship, they come in and they prevent the word of God from taking root. So they never grow into the plants that they're meant to be. 
they, they wither and they die. He said, sometimes the word of God will grow in us and it will begin to experience some of its life again and we'll begin to see it, it, it working in us. But then what happens? Well, he says, the deceitfulness of wealth, those shiny golden statues, and the worries of this life, those furnaces, and the desires that come from ourselves, they come in and they choke the word. So we just don't see it anymore. And so the word doesn't grow as it should in our lives. But finally, there's some people who hold on to the word of God and allow it to do its work as they grow into the people God created them to be. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, isn't it? They were good soil. They were those who didn't allow living in Babylon to snatch God's word away. They were those who didn't allow the opposition of all those people in Babylon to, to squash the word of God in their life. They didn't allow the fear of the furnace to drive it away. They didn't allow the golden statues and the fine food and the important jobs to, to tempt them to take their eyes away from God and to stop hearing and seeing his word. But instead they held fast to God's words and kept their eyes fixed on him. That is the story of every single one of us in this room. We hear God's words. And so are we going to allow that word to be snatched away? Are we going to allow it to be withered and choked by shiny statues and furnaces and a crowd and ourselves? Or are we instead going to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? And like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, allow him to loom so large in our lives that we obey him, we live for him, we enjoy him, we return to him again and again, even when we're surrounded by so many distractions. Let me pray for us as we finish.